playwright Arthur Miller once said, betrayal is the only truth that sticks. For those deceived by Anna Sorokin, her betrayal of their trust, good faith, and friendship certainly left a lasting impression. For years, the key to Anna's success was her ambiguous past. Vagueness was her weapon of choice. She provided just enough detail to bring someone to her side, then won them over completely by showing off just enough money. Pick up the check enough times and nobody's going to ask too many questions. It was sound logic until Anna double-crossed one friend too many. When Anna mistook friendship for business, her house of cards began to fall apart, and slowly, the truth caught up with her, betrayal sticking like mud. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every Wednesday, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. You can find episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we met Anna Sorokin, a young woman who posed as a European heiress in order to swindle banks, hotels, restaurants, and her friends out of thousands of dollars. Today, we'll examine the outrageous way Anna's scams finally came to an end. Then we'll dig into the trial that made her a media sensation and her efforts to reinvent herself after prison. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. In May of 2017, 26-year-old Anna Sorokin was on a hot streak. For more than a year, she'd been pulling off breathtaking scams all over New York City, defrauding banks, staying in hotels for free, and even chartering a private jet without paying a cent. She'd gotten away with it all by posing as an heiress about to come into a large fortune. People bought her lies, loaned her money because they thought she was good for it. But Anna got greedy. Well, greedier. She decided to take a little trip. She brought along her close friend, 28-year-old Rachel Deloche Williams, and two other pals, Jesse, a videographer, and Casey, their fitness trainer, to a five-star resort in Morocco. It was supposed to be a luxurious getaway, all courtesy of Anna's trust fund. But unbeknownst to her friends, Anna was completely broke. She'd blown through all the loans she'd conned out of various banks and was struggling to keep her ruse going. Even though she had no way of paying for the trip, she pressed ahead, asking Rachel to buy their flights and promising to pay her back. At first, Rachel didn't mind. It was the least she could do for her friend. But then Rachel's credit cards were put down at the Lux Hotel, and she was forced to foot the bill for a private tour of the home of Yves Saint Laurent. Only by then, her credit card was maxed out, and Rachel didn't know what to do. Needing answers and hoping someone could help her out of this mess, Rachel asked to use the phone. 
She called American Express in the U.S., explained the situation, and asked why her card wasn't working. The agent on the phone explained that a hotel in Morocco had just finalized a charge for almost $31,000. Rachel was stunned. The hotel had promised that the charge would be a temporary hold, collateral until Anna provided another payment option, but they'd put through the full amount. Perhaps sensing Rachel's shock, the agent calmly asked her how much money she needed to get out of Morocco safely. Rachel gave him a number, and the agent raised her spending limits. With that, she paid for the private tour and left, glad that one thing, at least, was behind her. But back at the hotel, Anna didn't seem that worried about Rachel's sudden money troubles or that grateful for her help. She nonchalantly told Rachel she'd have money wired to her by the end of the weekend, and that was that. Naively, Rachel believed her. From here on in, we should note that we really only have Rachel's side of the story to go off of. She recounts the saga in her book, My Friend Anna, The True Story of a Fake Heiress. But according to Rachel, it's at this point that Anna's lies started to unravel. The day after she stepped in to cover Anna's failing debit card, Rachel left the group in Morocco for a work trip to France. She was relieved to be on her own again and away from the drama of Anna's financial problems. But as days went by and the wire didn't hit her bank account, Rachel began to worry. She had no idea what could be taking so long. She also heard a troubling report of what happened in Morocco after she left. One of the people in their party, the videographer Anna had invited so that he could film her for a potential documentary, couldn't wait to get home. Anna had assured him she'd buy his return flight, but when he got to the airport, there was no reservation for him. Anna had lied. By the end of May, about two weeks after their trip, Anna still hadn't paid Rachel back, and it was stressing her out. Both of her credit cards were frozen, and she didn't know how she'd pay her rent. But oddly, Anna didn't disappear. She texted Rachel about it every day, all day. She kept saying that she was sorry and seemed genuinely concerned about the situation, but she couldn't explain why the wire transfer didn't work. She even put Rachel in touch with her family accountant, a woman named Bettina Wagner, who assured Rachel that everything had been done to make the wire happen. But still, the money didn't show up. Rachel didn't know what to make of any of this. Little did she know that Bettina Wagner actually was Anna, emailing from a bogus account. Bizarrely, Anna continued to talk about future trips with Rachel. She wanted them to meet up in Palm Springs for Memorial Day and go see an art installation in the desert. She texted about the cute rental car they'd get. Given everything that had happened in Morocco and what was still happening, it was weird and exasperating behavior. Perhaps strangest of all was that Rachel wasn't sure where Anna actually was. Anna had said she was going to London from Morocco and then on to Los Angeles. But then Rachel heard from Casey, the fitness trainer who'd gone on the trip with them, and she had a wild story to tell. Anna had called Casey desperate. She was still in Morocco, but now at a different hotel. Only she couldn't pay her charges there either. 
Something was still wrong with her card, she said, and the hotel was about to have her arrested. For reasons that aren't clear, the arrest never happened, and the hotel simply had Anna escorted off the property and to the airport. But she explained through tears she didn't have the means to fly home, so Casey offered to buy her a plane ticket, and Anna accepted, then requested it be a business class seat. Rachel was alarmed by the story, but for now, it didn't feel sinister. It was just another in a string of incidents that didn't add up. Still, one thing was clear. Anna was having major problems. Through it all, she maintained that the wire transfer was on its way to Rachel's accounts, and in the meantime, sent Rachel $5,000 over PayPal in June. Grateful, Rachel used the money to pay her rent, but it didn't come close to covering the bills Anna racked up in Morocco. Rachel was beginning to get more and more exasperated. Her credit card company was calling her all the time, wanting her to make a payment. When the stress got to be too much, she opened up to a relative about the whole debacle. After hearing the story, the family member asked a question that, in hindsight, seems obvious. They wondered if Anna was a con artist. Rachel laughed it off. Anna was just a little disorganized, that's all. She was good for the money. She had to be. Before we continue with the psychology for today's episode, I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. The fact that Rachel couldn't see that Anna was lying to her isn't all that shocking, really. It turns out that on average, people can only tell the truth from a lie 54% of the time, according to a 2006 study. And a 2012 study found that emotionally intelligent people are more likely to fall for a lie than those who are not. Additionally, it turns out that having a high aptitude for reading people's emotions is associated with a lower ability to pick up on deception. So it's likely that Rachel's friendship with Anna clouded her judgment. She felt empathy towards her friend, which kept her from seeing her for what she really was, a predator. But then Anna's behavior took a turn for the bizarre. In mid-June, Anna texted Rachel, saying she had a cashier's check for her. Desperate to pay down her enormous debt, Rachel rushed over to the Beekman Hotel to pick it up. But when she got there, Anna seemed more disorganized than usual, as evidenced by the disheveled state of her room. Rachel watched as Anna looked for the check. It might not surprise you to learn that she couldn't find it. She told Rachel that she might have left it in a car the previous afternoon, but promised that she'd have it delivered to the hotel. At this point, Rachel knew Anna was lying and was sick of waiting, so she stayed by her side the entire day. Anna was clearly not expecting this and tried to get rid of her friend. She told Rachel that she had work to do and a conference call to take but then spent the rest of the afternoon in the hotel bar, looking at her phone and ordering wine and oysters. By now, Rachel was determined to get to the bottom of what was going on. Not only was Anna's behavior getting increasingly strange, but an obvious question was bothering Rachel. If Anna was having money troubles, why didn't she just go to her parents? Rachel realized that she'd need to do a little digging into Anna's past. So she reached out to a friend she and Anna had in common, a man from Germany who knew Anna during her internship at Purple Magazine. 
What he had to tell Rachel was both illuminating and concerning. He was under the impression that Anna lived on trust fund disbursements. She'd get $30,000 at the start of every month and sometimes blow through it before the month was out. Then she'd have to ask her friends for money to get by. He knew because she'd done it to him and he'd had trouble getting paid back. It wasn't until he'd threatened to go to her parents that she'd complied. But then he told Rachel something else. Anna was supposed to have inherited $10 million on her 26th birthday, which had come and gone some months ago. He'd heard that her parents had delayed the payout because she was so bad with money. Now, he believed she'd get her fortune in September, just a couple of months away. The story had enough details that things felt like they made sense at last, and for a moment, Rachel believed Anna would have the money to pay her back in a couple of months. But then the man mentioned something else. He said that Anna's dad was a Russian billionaire. This was news to Rachel. As far as she knew, Anna was German, not Russian. And while Rachel tried to piece together the puzzle Anna had left in her wake, the faux heiress tried desperately to placate her friend. At the beginning of July, Anna called Rachel in tears. The money was coming, she said, and sent through a screenshot of a wire confirmation from her bank as proof. But again, no money came. What did come were more strange stories about Anna and the friends she owed money to, like Casey. Not only did Anna still owe her money for the flight, she'd also shown up at Casey's apartment asking for a place to stay. It was bewildering. Anna wouldn't explain why, but she seemed determined to stay at Casey's for as long as possible. What neither woman knew was that Anna Delvey, the supposed European heiress, had nowhere to live. But that didn't mean she was going to come clean. And things were about to get much, much worse. Coming up, Anna finally lands on the authorities' radar. The worst serial killer, the creepiest cult, the most outrageous con? If you're a true crime fan, you've probably pondered these things. Well, now you can get answers, or at least some passionate opinions. Every week on our podcast, Crime Countdown, my co-host Ash and I rank 10 unsettling crimes centered around a common theme, debating each case with just a hint of humor to lighten the mood. Elena and I may not be experts, and we may not always agree, but we're counting down anyway. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Crime Countdown. Listen free on Spotify. Now back to the story. In July of 2017, 26-year-old Anna Delvey was running out of luck. Her taste for the luxe life outstripped her ability to swindle money, and her hotel scams were catching up with her. First, she'd nearly gotten arrested in Morocco when she couldn't pay her bill at a hotel. Then she'd been thrown out of two New York hotels, one after the other. At the Beekman, where she'd stayed for almost three weeks, she'd racked up over $11,500 in charges. When they eventually realized she hadn't given them a working credit card, the hotel locked her out of her room and confiscated her things. Anna then went to another hotel, 
the W Hotel downtown. This time, she paid for her room using credit card points, but then she spent more than $500 on minibar snacks and drinks, which she wasn't able to pay for, so they threw her out after two days. By July, Anna had nowhere to sleep, and her closest friends had no idea, until something resembling the truth started to emerge. One night, Anna showed up at Rachel Deloche Williams' apartment, sobbing and looking, quote, haggard, bleary-eyed, and disconsolate. She explained that she'd had to check out of her hotel and that she owed her bankers and lawyers one and a half million dollars. Despite her confusion, Rachel allowed her friend to spend the night, but she couldn't help asking, why didn't Anna ask her parents for help if things were this dire? They were billionaires, right? But Anna was adamant that wasn't an option. And when she eventually left the apartment, she repeated her promise to pay Rachel back for their trip to Morocco. Where she went after that is unclear, but she didn't seem to make any attempts to get herself out of trouble or even to put the brakes on her extravagant spending. After all, a girl's gotta eat, right? It was around this time that Anna showed up at the Parker Meridian Hotel on West 57th Street for lunch, a long lunch. After lingering at her table for six hours, she tried to pay her bill using a series of faulty credit cards. When all of her cards were rejected, she informed the restaurant staff that her Aunt Bettina from Germany was about to check into the hotel. Anna grandly said that her aunt would pay the bill. The hotel called shenanigans, then they called the police. By now, the authorities were well aware that Anna had stiffed the Beekman and W hotels, so they charged her with three counts of misdemeanor theft of services. Then they released her to await a September court date. It's hard to understand why Anna would continue to press her luck like this, pushing ever closer to legal trouble, but it seems likely her inflated sense of entitlement was at play. According to psychologist Dr. Maria Konnikova, most con artists exhibit strong narcissistic traits. Part of this is believing oneself so wonderful that you're more deserving of wealth and success than the people you're conning. So while Anna's schemes and long lunches were clearly bringing her inexorably close to a fiery end, she couldn't help herself. This was the life she deserved. And while Anna had her first brush with the law, Rachel was desperate to find a solution to her own financial mess. At this point, American Express demanded that she pay the balance on her cards in full, or they would report her to the credit bureaus. So Rachel met with a friend who was a lawyer, and he advised her to go to the police. Rachel was surprised. It just didn't seem like the right option. But with no other ideas, she took his advice. At her neighborhood precinct, she told her story to a cop, who shrugged and said there was nothing they could do. The grift had taken place in Morocco, not in the U.S. It was out of their jurisdiction. Trying to be helpful, he suggested she start a GoFundMe page to recoup her losses. It was a frustrating setback, but Rachel still felt like the law might just be the right way to go, and she went to civil court. Frustratingly, she was told that what Anna owed her exceeded the maximum amount usually handled in civil disputes. It felt like everywhere she turned led to a dead end, 
and Rachel was feeling despondent. Then a text came through. Anna had showed up at Casey's apartment, and Casey had an idea. She wanted Rachel to come over so they could take Anna somewhere for an intervention. Rachel wasn't sure how it could help, but she decided to give it a try. She met Casey and Anna at a bar, and the three were joined there by one of Casey's clients, a take-charge woman named Beth. Over drinks, the women took turns trying to get to the bottom of Anna's situation. They interrogated her about her family, her finances, her excuses. But Anna deflected each question masterfully. She refused to admit any wrongdoing or that she'd done anything on purpose. But Anna did come clean about something. She told her friends about her arrest at the Parker Meridian, though she kept the details very vague. The story had made it to the tabloids, and Anna likely knew she couldn't hide it from her friends forever. Then again, she might have just wanted honest feedback on her publicity. Rachel read the article right there at the bar and noticed that Anna seemed more concerned with the way she'd been portrayed in the press than with the consequences of being arrested. But that was all she seemed anxious about, even when her financial issues were hurting her friends. And Rachel had had enough. Not long after the failed intervention, Rachel decided to go to the Manhattan District Attorney. It was her last shot at getting some help. She wrote the DA's office an email, letting them know that she'd been taken in by someone named Anna Sorokin Delvey, who she suspected of being a con artist. Later that day, she got a call back. It was an assistant district attorney who told her, we think you're right. A short time later, Rachel met with the prosecutors. They confirmed what Rachel had come to suspect. Anna was a complete fraud, totally broke a con artist, and Rachel wasn't her only mark. Apart from that, they didn't divulge any other suspicions about what Anna had done. They just told Rachel to dispute the credit card charges with American Express and sent her on her way. But a few days later, a police officer from the Financial Crimes Task Force contacted Rachel. He asked her to contact him with any updates on her communication with Anna so they could help the DA's office. After this, Rachel wanted to do what she could to assist the investigation. Still stung by her friend's betrayal, she went through Anna's social media accounts and took screenshots to track her movements over the past several years. She also printed out her entire text message history with Anna and handed it over. But it didn't stop there. As Anna's September court date approached, Rachel testified at a grand jury hearing into Anna's criminal activities, and even then, she wasn't done. Perhaps suspecting her former friend hadn't changed her ways, Rachel kept a close eye on Anna's Instagram. Towards the end of August, she noticed that Anna was regularly posting content featuring palm trees and blue skies. This was odd, because it certainly didn't look like Anna was in New York. If Rachel had to guess, she'd say her former friend was in California, and that she had no plans to make her court date. Which is exactly what happened. Anna didn't show. When police reached out to Rachel asking for help, she was ready. She told them she'd do what she could to track Anna down. Rachel knew that all she needed to do was get Anna talking, so she reached out for the first time in a while. 
Anna was wary at first, but she slowly revealed more and more, seeming to get closer to something resembling the truth. At first, she told Rachel that she'd been in the hospital in California and that she'd been staying there into October, but that was as close to specifics as Rachel could get from her slippery friend. So she was patient. And then Rachel got a lucky break at last. Her work scheduled a trip for her in early October to Los Angeles. It was perfect. When she told Anna the news, they made plans to reunite on the West Coast. Anna was so excited that she called Rachel, sounding her usual self, breezy, unaffected, girly. And she finally told Rachel where she was, in Malibu at a rehab facility. She didn't specify what issue she was dealing with, and she didn't name the facility, but Rachel quickly guessed that it was the most expensive one, passages. However, Anna wasn't just there to get help. She'd gone there to hide. Healthcare privacy laws prohibit rehab facilities from giving out information about their patients, including whether they are even at the center. And without confirmation that a person is there, it's difficult for police to carry out arrests on site. It was a typically savvy move from Anna, who was always one step ahead. But Rachel was closing in. After arriving in Los Angeles, she made plans to have lunch with Anna, framing it as a long-overdue catch-up. But it was really just a way to get Anna to leave the safety of the rehab facility. She never even made it to the restaurant. On October 3, 2017, police arrested Anna as she left the Passages facility in Malibu. They brought her to Los Angeles County's Century Regional Detention Facility and held her there for three weeks. Then the NYPD picked Anna up on October 25th and flew her back to New York in coach. She was arraigned the next morning, and the world finally learned the scope of Anna's fraud. She'd allegedly stolen $275,000 through a multitude of cons, and had attempted to steal millions more along the way. It was likely she'd planned on scamming the rehab place, too. The fees there were $60,000 a month, and there was certainly no way she could pay that. At last, the truth about Anna was revealed, though by now it should hardly have come as a surprise. She wasn't a millionaire heiress. When her parents were tracked down in Germany, they admitted that Anna had always been selfish, and they didn't try to defend her crimes. But Anna did. In court, she pled not guilty to the charges of larceny. Then she was whisked away to Rikers Island to wait for her full trial. But before it started, there was another twist in the story. Anna was about to become a celebrity. Coming up, Anna's story goes viral and her life changes forever. Now back to the story. Seven months after her arrest, 27-year-old Anna Sorokin was in prison on Rikers Island, just outside New York City. And she still had a long stay ahead of her. Her trial wasn't due to start for almost another year. Inside the penitentiary, her life looked nothing like it used to. She was accustomed to five-star hotels, fine French cuisine, and ordering champagne and oysters on a whim. Now, she was just barely getting through the monotony of life in prison. 
But on May 28, 2018, everything changed. A story about Anna, written by Jessica Pressler, ran in the digital magazine The Cut. In delicious detail, it laid out all of her scams, her bizarre double life, and how it had all gone wrong. Among the photos accompanying the piece was a simple headshot of Anna, accented by heavy eyeliner. Her gaze bore into the camera. She didn't look like your average con artist. She looked like an innocent young woman. Maybe that's why the story went viral. Before long, everyone was talking about the young grifter who scammed banks and lawyers into giving her thousands of dollars. It was a sensation and became one of the Internet's most read stories for the entire year. And that was just the beginning. Eleven days after the piece appeared, Netflix announced they were making a television series about Anna's story, and it would be written by none other than Shonda Rhimes, creator of Grey's Anatomy and Scandal. Less publicized was the money Netflix paid Anna as part of the deal, $30,000. Despite this unexpected triumph, Anna still had her trial to get through, and that brought its own set of challenges. Most visible of these was Anna's wardrobe. Prison chic wasn't going to do her any favors in the courtroom, so on the first day of jury selection, her legal team scrambled for an alternative. An assistant was dispatched with a couple hundred dollars to pick up a sensible outfit from H&M. The resulting look was better than her jumpsuit, but less than ideal. At least, that's what stylist Anastasia Walker thought. So she reached out to Anna's team to offer her services for the rest of the trial. Having seen the off-the-rack ensemble, Walker knew she could do better. And Anna was delighted to have the help. After a phone consultation, she and Walker decided to go for timeless colors and shapes that would age well, because on the internet, photographs last forever, and Anna was nothing if not image conscious. With that in mind, Walker sent Anna designer pieces from brands like Marc Jacobs, Victoria Beckham, and Yves Saint Laurent. And while it seems likely Anna was more concerned with how she was perceived in the tabloids, her outfits might have had a bigger impact than she intended. That's because the way a defendant dresses has an important psychological impact, whether a jury or judge is aware of it or not. Don Karen, the founder of the Fashion Psychology Institute, told the Evening Standard that Anna's fashion choices were extremely thought out and deliberate. Her chunky designer glasses would give the impression that she was a geeky, rule-abiding citizen, and her plain black skirts and nude-colored sweaters would subconsciously tell the jury that she she was as demure and muted as her wardrobe. And though her looks were understated, they still turned heads. With people anxious to see what the socialite scammer would wear each day, and the lingering public interest in the story, the trial turned into a bit of a media circus, and Anna's lawyer was determined to get the audience on his side. He painted a picture of Anna as a millennial with moxie and hustle, who just took a few shortcuts to get what she wanted. He claimed that she always intended to pay everyone back, and that she never actually deceived anyone about who she was. She simply allowed them to believe what they wanted to. He even told the jury, 
There's a little bit of Anna in all of us. The prosecution did not agree. As far as they were concerned, there were no shades of gray to this story. The prosecutor argued that Anna knowingly stole from banks, hedge funds, and acquaintances to fuel an over-the-top lifestyle that she felt deserving of. In short, Anna was a thief. After three weeks of legal proceedings, the jury went off to deliberate. Two days later, they had their verdict. 28-year-old Anna returned to the courtroom wearing a flowing dress of white, the color of innocence. If it was wishful thinking, it didn't work. Anna was found guilty on six of the eight charges against her and sentenced to four to 12 years in prison. Additionally, she was fined $24,000 and ordered to pay restitution of $199,000. But the story was far from over for Anna. Following her conviction, she signed a new contract with Netflix, this one for life rights, giving the company exclusive rights to adapt her story and to her assistance on the production. Crucially, it also meant more money. It's been reported that Netflix has paid Anna over $300,000, but due to the Son of Sam rule, which forbids criminals from profiting off their crimes, that money needs to first be made available for restitution. Rachel Deloche Williams wasn't able to claim any of that money, as Anna wasn't found guilty for manipulating her into paying for their Moroccan getaway. Fortunately, Rachel was able to have American Express credit her accounts for the charges, and she put the matter behind her. Not before writing a book about the saga, though. And while her story slowly faded from public consciousness and her courtroom pictures disappeared from social media, Anna served her time in New York's Albion Correctional Facility. Then, in February of 2021, Anna was released early for good behavior, less than two years after she was sentenced. From there, she moved into a chic Manhattan hotel where she gave magazine interviews and rekindled her Instagram account. She told the press that she was writing a memoir about her time behind bars and announced that she wanted to work for criminal justice reform. But despite this claim of benevolence, Anna seems unrepentant for her actions. She told one reporter that her prison sentence was a huge waste of time and claimed that she never set out to hurt anybody. All she wanted was to get her exclusive art club off the ground. She told the Sunday Times of London that, quote, I understood I was cutting corners and taking shortcuts, but in my mind, I was never doing anything criminal. Whether or not Anna really believes this is anyone's guess, but the authorities weren't impressed with her post-prison attitude. They believed that her press clippings and social media footprint showed she wasn't reformed. Just over a month after she was released from prison, she was taken into custody by immigration authorities, who argued in court that she was a danger to society. As of April 2021, she remains in custody, facing deportation to Germany. Whether she finds a way to stay in New York remains to be seen, but if her fans have any say in the matter, she'll stay stateside. 
Judging from the comments on her social media accounts, it seems many people think Anna's a hero. They see her as a millennial Robin Hood, a symbol of rebellion against the wealthy. But Anna never set out to enrich others. Her grand schemes were only ever designed to help one person, Anna. And her actions show that she doesn't care who she has to step on along the way. Even in high school, Anna was obsessed with owning the best, most expensive brands, and that never went away. It's just that no one ever seemed to notice that the brand she cared about the most was herself. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Anna Delvey, amongst the many sources we used, we found My Friend Anna, The True Story of a Fake Heiress by Rachel Deloche-Williams, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joanna Philbin, with writing assistance by Joel Callen and Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 